Perhaps this story will sound familiar. In the fall of 2014, Telegraph reporter Sophie Curtis received an unsolicited email, a LinkedIn connection request from someone who appeared to work at her publication. So she clicked on the link and thought nothing of it. In retrospect, she realized she probably should have checked her company's employee list before accepting the invite. I, too, receive a lot of LinkedIn invitations, and I generally don't respond if I don't know the person on the other end, even if they say they work at my company. We get too many requests like this, and so who bothers to check to see, did it really come from LinkedIn? In Sophie's case, the unsolicited email, it was okay. A short time later, though, Sophie received another unsolicited email. This time, it was from someone she didn't know at an anonymous whistleblowing organization. This email included a doc file. And as a reporter, Sophie sometimes receives documents from individuals as evidence of what they claim. And the claim in the body of the email seemed believable at the time. So she opened the attached doc from the whistleblower. And as soon as she did so, the Windows Defender started flashing security alerts. And the warnings, they kept piling up on her desktop screen. Worse, the malicious software within the doc file opened her webcam and took a picture of a startled Sophie and displayed that on the screen. But Sophie wasn't too concerned. You see, weeks before, she had contracted with a testing company to try and trick her into opening a malicious document. And after a few weeks of researching her behavior, they succeeded. Sophie went on to tell this story in a subsequent Telegraph article, and I used her story in The Art of Invisibility, a book on digital best practices that I wrote with Kevin Mitnick. So the question is, are social engineering training programs like this effective? Do one-off tests start to drive corrective behavior that the IT department at Telegraph or other organizations hope to see? Or are there better, more scientific methods for creating good security behaviors in employees? In a moment, we'll talk with someone with experience in the intelligence community who is now using behavioral models, not quarterly phishing tests, to drive effective security change in corporate environments. I hope you'll stick around. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, we're going to learn some things about human behavior and how to nudge people to move towards safer and better security practices. So I'm a CISSP, and I've covered the security beat for over 20 years. I like to think that I'm smart enough to know when I'm being scammed. And in the main, I've avoided a lot of the pitfalls of clicking on this or that. Someone might say, maybe I'm too skeptical of email and texts and invitations that I receive. Perhaps I'm overdoing it. So that's why I was eager to talk with someone 
like my guest. My name is Oz Alashe. I'm CEO and founder of CybeSafe. CybeSafe is a software company. We build software that helps automate behavior change, influences employee security behaviors, and reduces risk for organizations. Oz is a former UK Special Forces Lieutenant Colonel. He's focused on making organizations more secure by helping organizations address the human aspect of cybersecurity. He has extensive experience and understanding in the areas of intelligence insight, complex human networks, and human cyber risk and resilience. He's also passionate about reducing societal threats to stability and security by making the most of opportunities presented through advancements in technology. I met up with Oz at the RSA conference in San Francisco and wanted to pick his brain about the human factor and other topics. First, though, I was very curious about his transition from the intelligence community to commercial business. Yeah, it's been um, it's been incredible. I mean, I, I'm a former army officer originally. That's uh, in the UK. So I finished university, went to the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, which is where we send our officers to train, and then joined my unit, and then followed volunteered to go and serve uh, with UK Special Forces, focused on counterterrorism, and and kind of that journey for me uh, has spread over 17 years of service. Um, in many ways, I feel like I'm still serving now. Uh, I'm serving clearly in a very different context, and that's fantastic. And building a software company that is full of software engineers, behavioral scientists, and data scientists is um, is slightly different. But of course, I worked with um, great software engineers, data scientists, and behavioral scientists on the other side of the government fence in a previous life. So the transition has been exciting and interesting. It's amazing and wonderful to be focused on addressing a challenge that we know is going to make a big difference for a lot of people. And that's really what we're doing at CyberSafe. We, we aim to fundamentally transform the way society addresses human cyber risk. It's nice to be at home a bit more, I guess. It's also nice to be in places that are slightly less, uh, slightly less unpleasant. But the reality is I loved my service. I loved every second of it. I really appreciated the opportunity to work with some amazing people in some amazing countries, helping some amazing people. We hear a lot about human factor, but it's a lot more complicated than just a simple phishing attack. Yeah, you're absolutely right when you talk about the human factor. And in many ways, the human factor within an organization breaks down into two. One side, you've got the makers, masters, and maintainers of technology. So those people who write software code and build architecture and infrastructure. But on the other side, you've got the majority of the workforce, most employees, people like you and I who use technology all day, every day for our jobs or to live our lives. And that is um, often poses a really rather large risk for most organizations. People talk about the inside a threat, but people aren't a threat. The threat is outside of the organization in most cases. There are vulnerabilities and risks. There's an exception to that. There's a very small number of people in the organization who do things deliberately to bring harm to the organization, but most employees don't do that. Most of the risks and most of the inside of threat and inverted commas that people are talking about are actually accidental mistakes or people trying to do things to get their jobs done, but ultimately doing things that bring harm to the organization by mistake. And so that's where we're focused. We're focused on security behaviors of everyday people. And actually there's a lot more to it. Deep science and a fair bit of data that can be used to reduce that risk. I would imagine the way people do security in their own homes and the way they do social media and the way they bring that into the workplace, that has something to do with these bad habits. 
I mean, they're carrying over into the workplace stuff that might pass for their own individual security, right? That's exactly right. So um, so those security behaviours that I'm talking about, and they're not always accidents. Sometimes it's actually just ignorance or people don't know or haven't done something. So in, in many ways, it might even be negligence. But the reality is it's not intentional harm and uh, in most cases. But you're right to list the different types of behaviours. There's actually over 120 of them. We've actually catalogued every single security behaviour and linked it to every single risk outcome. And you've given some examples. What do people do with their social media privacy settings? Um, what passwords do people use? And indeed, how frequently do they use them across different accounts. Have people changed the default password on their Wi-Fi router at home? Is their device set to auto-lock after a period of inactivity? These are all examples of security behaviors that can reduce risk for the individual and the organization. So I'm curious if Oz has any ballpark estimates. How many are accidental events and how many are deliberate? Yeah, it's a really great question. So I don't have a, um, a, a stat for that, but it's definitely something we should and could look at. Um, I think in the last Verizon data breach report, they reported that 82% of um, all breaches were somehow related to the human element. There is an argument that says surely every breach is related somehow to the human element, even if it's just the misconfiguration of, of systems and software. But, but they're specifically looking at human error and um, steps that, and things that people don't do, so slips, lapses and mistakes, as, is, uh, as has been described within the academic literature. But I don't have a figure that's, um, that helps us determine what percentage is malicious and what percentage is, is accidental. So is it a matter of having better onboarding for organizations to say, you may do this at home, but now in the organization, you can't do that anymore. You got to do these other things. There are some companies that now specialize in social engineering in the workforce, and they'll set up a quarterly phishing campaign and identify the employees that fell under the email spell, recommending them for even more training, which in the social engineering company probably wants to sell to that company. The thing is, Oz, who has experience in the science of behavioral modification, he's not buying into this. So unfortunately, the um, security industry for some time has really kind of really lent into hard this kind of idea of training. If we just train people, they'll behave better. But the, the truth is, Rob, that training isn't the issue. What do I mean by that? It's not that training is not important, but this kind of mantra and this kind of drumbeat we have of trick, train and entertain. I'm going to send you some phishing simulations, so I'm going to effectively trick you and try and get you to do something wrong and maybe you'll learn if I do that to you. Or I'm going to train you, I'm going to give you some training and onboarding, I'm going to get you to do some e-learning, I'm going to get you to watch some funny videos and this either entertain, I'm going to make you laugh. All of these things in the hope that they will change behavior. It's just hilarious when you consider that there's a science behind behavior change and Trick, train, and entertain isn't the answer to this. Wow, that's a powerful mantra. Trick, train, and maintain. And that's what the social engineering companies, that's what they want to do. There are all sorts of industries that have focused quite heavily on influencing people's security behavior. And they realized some time ago that even though training might be a very small part of it, it's not the answer. Most of us need help. The social engineering companies really not engaging in behavior modification. It seems like they just want to maintain. It doesn't really go deep enough to make the change real. Give you an example in another completely natural sphere for most of us. My watch tells me when to stand up. It literally buzzes and tells me when to stand up. Your device, probably, if you're going from 
A to B would give you some directions that included giving you visual cues, maybe even um, uh, physical cues in terms of haptic alerts. All of these things are examples of nudges and prompts that can be applied to influence your behavior. We need to be doing the same in security. So let's think about that Fitbit example. You want stimulus when you meet your step goal. So your watch, it'll vibrate and it'll display balloons and confetti. You did it. With security, though, you need that positive feedback loop as well. And that seems to be missing from a lot of these phishing campaigns and so forth. So Oz mentioned the feedback loop and the idea that we respond to nudges to increase our security posture. How would a security system monitor or know when it needs to provide that nudge? Is it looking at our keystrokes? Yeah, so we're monitoring behavior, yes, but we don't monitor keystrokes because in essence, a keystroke really is um, helping you determine whether one, somebody is typing and two, what they might be typing. But actually what we're interested in, as I said, are those security behaviors, 120 of them that are related to very specific risk outcomes. There are eight risk outcomes that most security professionals in most organizations want to avoid. And so those behaviors include, as I said, things like um, have people uh, set their devices to auto lock after a period of time, um, have people, are people using decent passwords, are people using passwords that have been compromised. These risky behaviors are behaviors that ultimately we can see that by um, what device you, or are they visiting browsers that they shouldn't be visiting or trying to download things from sites, clicking on links that they shouldn't be. Um, all of these behaviors are behaviors that actually many of us exhibit very naturally in our everyday um, kind of work and life. And therefore we can get those behavior event intelligence signals, that's what we call them, behavior event intelligence signals. We can get those through data integrations within the organization. This might seem to be splitting hairs, but what Oz does is not the classic monitoring. Yeah, monitoring event intelligence signals sounds like a marketing term. Well, it's not. For example, a behavioral event interview when hiring is to get a very detailed behavioral description of how a person goes about doing his or her work. Something similar is happening here. One, one of the reasons we're, we're always careful with the language monitoring is one, most people don't want to be monitored, but two, actually think of it as, as help. You know, we give off and indeed um, provide all sorts of data sources in our use of technology every day, and that can be used to provide us really personalized guidance and help. Um, that's less about monitoring, and that's more about using data sources in order to support people who need it, because most of us can't remember everything all the time. So this sounds more like a human security audit. Yeah, that's right. Um, it is more of an audit process in that sense. I guess the good thing about audit processes in general is um, they can be configured to whatever you think is important. You know, in most cases, when you, you know, audit is something that somebody determines that you should do and should have, and they come and check. And in that sense, that's exactly what the security team can do, because it's different for every organization. Depending on the risk outcomes you want to avoid, that will determine which behaviors are important to you. And then those are the ones you should focus on. mentioned that his work is based on scientific facts. There are models from which he derives his analytics. Oh, indeed, there's a fair bit of science behind what it takes to influence and change behavior. And there's lots of behavior um, change models. One of the ones that we like is called COMB. It stands for Capability, Opportunity, and Motivation. It's a, effectively a, a scientific model that looks at the different things that are needed in order to influence a human being's security behavior. And so we have built and cataloged, like I said, every single security behavior, a security behavior database that um, literally explains every single security behavior for risk out and we help security professionals identify the risk outcome they want to avoid. So 
identity theft, data leakage, um, uh, uh, all sorts of privacy violation. Identify the security, uh, the risk outcome they want to avoid, and then look at the specific behaviors that relate to that risk outcome. And then we provide them digital behavior change interventions through our app. So every single employee has access to our mobile device, uh, on our mobile app on their device, or indeed a desktop device, again, the desktop app on that device. And then that can provide them the alerts, the guidance, the nudges, the prompts, if indeed the training to be compliant as well. All of this provided through a software solution that personalizes to you as an individual. Because the reality is that you sometimes need nudges that other people don't need, or you need them at different times, or you need them delivered in different ways, or you respond better to some things than other things. Our platform learns all of that. So this is like having a digital trainer, someone who prompts you and reminds you to do things at certain times. So it's not exclusively digital at all. In fact, it's, uh, it's um, again, it comes from behavioral science. Um, so there's, there's lots of different models. Actually, the Combi model is, is one fantastic model. Another one that, again, we uh, subscribe to and also use for some sort of, some um, interventions would be what is BJ Fogg's um, uh, BMAP model. So looking at motivation, um, activities and prompts. These things are really quite important because they help organizations think through the intervention and then all of the things that need to be in place in order to drive behavior change. For most of us, our behavior is actually um, a equilibrium between driving forces and restraining forces. You have to look as much about why people aren't doing things as, as much as what you're going to do to drive them and try to remove those frictions, those barriers as they're known um, in uh, academic circles. So we publish all of our open research. We conduct a lot of open source research with a number of academic institutions both in the US and in the UK. And as I said, we build all of this and these interventions into our platform. So for Oz, there are actual scientific models on how to go about affecting behavioral change. It's not Tony Robbins in a late-night infomercial. No, this is actual research and analysis at work. So we start to see some really nice correlations, some really helpful correlations between certain types of behaviors, actually. So one of the things that we want to be able to help organizations do is to preempt risk before it occurs and then to predict what type of intervention is going to be most effective under what types of circumstances. So we can see linkages, people who generally um, have uh, certain password practices, may have uh, taken steps to influence their um, or adjust their privacy settings on social media, and also have completed uh, some form of uh, training and received an alert within a certain period of time are more likely to respond to that alert. And that's quite helpful for us, like up to 67% more likely to respond to that alert in some cases. And we see a 67% increase in the number of people who change their default password on the Wi-Fi router if you provide that intervention in the right way at the right time. So, so these things are helpful. Um, the beggars the question, what's the right way in the right time? You know, how do you actually learn that? And we use a series of data points to optimize our models. So that we build a variety of behavioral models. But interestingly, in some cases, even if you don't have access to that, you can literally allow people to choose themselves. What time would you like to be reminded of this? That's significantly in itself, 23% increase in people who actually go on to take the activity because they chose what time to be reminded about it. Often in security, we give people the right information at the wrong time. So Oz identifies a bunch of behaviors, and that leads to predictable outcomes. Risk outcomes include things. Remember, the things that these are generally things that organizations are trying to avoid. And again, quite often when we talk about security, we mix up our language. We mix up language like risk and vulnerability and threat, but ultimately they're all not necessarily the same things, even though often people use them interchangeably. In the case of risk outcomes, things we're talking about are things like data leakage, identity theft, malware infection, 
privacy violation, even physical damage. Um, these are all examples of risk outcomes that most um, security teams are keen to avoid. The reason it's important to distinguish between the different types of risk outcomes is because different types of behaviors might be relevant for different types of risk outcomes. Data linkages, that's kind of an obvious one. But what is one of the more subtle outcomes? So one of the more uh, subtle and, and indeed often least um, focused on, even though it actually will sound like it should be, is, uh, is privacy violation. Um, many organizations quite understandably recognize the need to protect data. And they also recognize the importance of privacy, whether that's the privacy of their employees, the privacy of their customers, et cetera, et cetera. But um, in many ways, there are things that we do that lead to a violation of privacy accidentally, um, or indeed, uh, maybe the action wasn't accidental, but the outcome um, was. And remember, we're talking about risk outcomes. So we're talking about uh, the likelihood multiplied by the probability, so the likelihood multiplied by the impact. So how likely is it that that thing's going to happen and what's the impact if it happens? And most organizations, again, if they really are managing risk properly, will be interested in making sure that they focus on the highest risk rather than just the most common thing. So as an international company, how different is, say, the emphasis in the United States versus in the UK or any other country for that matter? It's a great question because we are, um, we're a global business. We are being used in, our platform is being used in 22 countries. It's available in 24 different languages. And so we do see some differences across the geographic regions, albeit the majority of our customers are either in the UK or in the US. And actually those two markets, the UK and the US, are actually very similar. They're both mature security markets um, with relatively well-established um, uh, regulatory uh, bodies and architecture. That means that, albeit some industries more than others, but ultimately across those nations, there's a real understanding of the importance of looking after data, um, managing risks as it relates to networks and systems, and of course, devices and data. So um, we see quite similar practices where you actually for the last few years, and again, we're in the process of doing it now, we run a piece of research with the National Cybersecurity Alliance here at, in the US. They're the body that basically founded and brings uh, Security Awareness Month to the country every, uh, every year. And we run a piece of research with them called the O-Behave Report. And it looks at security behaviors in both the US, um, in the UK, this year we're adding France and Australia and Canada. And, um, and in those cases, we do see some slight differences between the drivers behind behaviors for different individuals. I wonder if Oz has seen any difference between the more technologically advanced countries and those that are new to the digital world. What does that gap look like? It is actually rather large, is the truth. So um, we, our platform is being used in countries in the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council, uh, and indeed in various parts of the continent of Africa as well. And in those cases where clearly they've bought the CyberSafe platform and are looking at addressing that type of risk, there's a real understanding that the human aspect is important, but actually that understanding is not necessarily universal across the nation. And indeed, we do see that many organizations, because the way our platform is configured, they can start small and grow into it. Many organizations are simply just trying to get to grips with providing their people some training. And that's okay as a start point, but as I said to you at the beginning, training doesn't necessarily change behavior. And if you're not changing behavior, you're not reducing risk. So they've got some way to go. I assume that there are cultural differences built into this. 
Cisco, for example, used to publish a report every year about security risks around the world, and it would talk about how shoulder surfing was unavoidable in this country, but unheard of in this other country based on cultural norms. Does that factor into Oz's analysis? It does. Um, we are, our platform is being used in some countries where there is a much more kind of, um, uh, dare I say it, obedient culture to authority, where people will listen to authority and um, really kind of act upon the guidance of or the direction from authority in the workplace in particular. And that's maybe interesting from a kind of, you see high completion rates when it comes to compliance. But of course, the challenge with that is you also see low um, challenge rates when it comes to things that people don't necessarily understand, they don't necessarily ask. The workforce just kind of just does it and gets on with it. And unfortunately, that's not necessarily great. It also means criminals actually find their lives a little bit easier too, because if you're impersonating somebody in a position of authority, we see that those impersonations are much more likely to be followed up in those, in those cultures because people have this kind of authority bias, um, which is, uh, which is the, the scientific term for what it is. So if this is a security audit, behavioral monitoring is important to start to correct how your employees are interacting with your network on a day-to-day -day basis. So let's flip that around and talk about malicious intent. It's not an area that we actually focus on hugely right now because, as I said, that insider threat, as many people refer to it, or insider risk, or actually well, a phrase that I really like that I'm seeing used more often is insider trust programs. But you're right, there are um, some actors within the organization, some people, members of your team, who unfortunately um, intend on doing the organization harm. Ultimately, everything that we do is underpinned by a, um, a behavioral model and a framework um, that really just needs to be contextually relevant and focused. And so that's what we've done at CyberSafe. We've developed um, upon the security behavior database a behavioral model that basically looks at all of those behaviors that, like I said, most people um, exhibit all day, every day, and don't realize are introducing risks to themselves and their organization. We might adjust that to look at the more malicious side and the more deliberate bad actors at some stage in the future, but it's not something that's on our immediate roadmap. I agree with Oz that the term insider threat is ill-defined and gets bandied about far too often to cover a lot of different things. For example, there's a degree of maliciousness from someone who's inside the organization. And there's often misinterpretations of actions as well. Um, they might actually not necessarily mean it as severe as it actually is. In some cases, they're just taking information because they think they have the right to have it, and they don't. It's not theirs. It belongs to the organization. They may be leaving the job. Maybe they're, they're um, disenfranchised, or maybe they're upset with something, and they're taking information that's not theirs. So that would be a really classic example, quite common in many organizations, if not most organizations. Um, but there are, of course, other actors as well that have been maybe are working on behalf of another actor, and that, of course, is even more damaging and challenging for most organizations, whether that's people working for nation states or even just competitors. Espionage, as we know, is a really key challenge. So those are all examples of insider threats, as many people describe them. But remember what I said, there are insider um, risks and those are people who are means to harm. And so actually the security behavior models for those individuals are actually different. And, and this is one of the reasons why for us, this is not something that we're focused on as a platform right now, but we are very focused on the research because we're interested in the linkages. But they are different. As I mentioned, I gave you a list of examples of things that people do that introduce risk to the organization, in essence, by mistake. 
they haven't changed the default password on their Wi-Fi router. They are using devices that aren't running the latest software. They are sharing devices with people and maybe sharing their credentials, or they're using credentials that have been compromised without meaning so. Those are all mistakes, and there's a, that's one type of model. But the one that you're talking about are people who are intentionally doing things to harm an organization. And actually, in those cases, it's actually quite limited what you can do about that. You can do things, but they're limited. So does the scenario ever come up with a phantom employee? Someone who has created user access and gives themselves all sorts of permissions, but they are in fact not employees? Mm. No, not in our um, particular uh, problem set. That's not a use case that we're focused on at CybeSafe. Um, again, we're focused on that kind of more common and actually more numerous use case, which is people who are using genuine, real credentials. Um, they have legitimate access. Sometimes maybe they have too much access, but it's legitimate. And, um, and then, unfortunately, they introduce risk to the system through things that they do and the way that they behave. Let's flip that around. Does Oz look at the outside influence? And by that, I mean someone who extorts someone within the company to behave against the company's wishes. So we look at um, outside influence in the context of uh, the challenges that most of us face, or indeed actually just the context that most of us face on things like social media. Um, we work alongside a number of academic institutions, some of whom are looking at uh, individuals who have been influenced um, Poorly, they, they really are surrounded by many people who are not necessarily taking security practices as seriously as they should be. But um, in what, we, what we don't do with our software is look at individuals who have been um, turned. In my previous life, I happened to have a former national security and counterterrorism background. That was something that we would look at quite closely. But actually, most organizations, our experience is the bigger loss and threats to the organization come from people who aren't actually under those sort of influences. So is the idea of PSYOPs campaigns to get sensitive data from organizations a bit romanticized by the media, perhaps? It's not romanticized. It exists. But it's actually a much smaller um, challenge in terms of percentage, numbers of people, even um, sometimes in terms of percentage, volume of, or of, uh, financial impact um, than for most organizations. And for many organizations, it's just not a challenge at all for them. If you're a large organization with thousands of people, um, the reality is that that kind of risk it always exists, that somebody in your organization, particularly if you have linkages to government or indeed sensitive IP. And what about a ballpark figure for people who just don't know what they're doing? That's a really good question because that varies um, it varies from, from uh, case to case and even actually context to context in terms of the way that you ask the question. So uh, in the UK, to give you an example, um, most large organizations, so those are organizations with more than a thousand people, um, are, have some form of security awareness training program in place. But again, remember what I said right at the very beginning, training um, and therefore awareness about something doesn't equal careness about something. So lots of people know about things but don't necessarily take the right steps and so there's a bit of a danger with looking too much about what people know because it's not the same as how people behave. I know I shouldn't eat as many biscuits as I'm probably going to eat this week. I'll do it anyway. Most smokers know that they shouldn't smoke and they might do it anyway. I know I should walk more than take the escalator, but I sometimes take the escalator anyway. So the reality is that knowledge, and therefore that percentage of people who don't know or do know, and behavior, they're not necessarily as correlated as we would think. It's all well and good to have a scientific model for human behavior, but there's that one pesky variable, human. 
We're not predictable. We're not infallible. So I wonder what the metrics might be for the work that Oz is doing. One of the things that we're really passionate about is helping organizations see whether what they're doing is working. So one of the real unique points of the CyberSafe platform, and we actually just make this really freely available to everybody, is that um, they can see whether the interventions that they're applying, the nudges and the prompts, are actually leading to any form of behavior change. And that being able to measure that data helps to give them a really clear view about the risk reduction. The reason that's important is because actually we need to get a feel for this at scale. Um, what does it look like across sectors? What does it look like across organizations of different sizes? What does it look like in different geographic regions? Um, and we know that, for example, the insurance community is really quite um, keen to understand risk better, but there's very little actuarial data, for example, about human risk right now. Um, most of it is about how many people have completed the training, how many people have done some fishing simulations, and how many people have attended an event of some description and watched something that might be security related. And again, as I said, those things don't change behavior. And I asked Oz if he's seen improvement in behavior. Is that something that he can quantify, even in a ballpark way? Yeah, absolutely. So we see a, between a 27 and 67% increase in the um, uh, behavior change for certain behaviors with individuals with the right interventions in the right context. It takes time. Behavior change doesn't happen overnight. That's something that's absolutely key. And I gave you the example of um, smart devices or wearable devices um, altering the number of steps that you take by simply giving you nudges and prompts and maybe leaderboards and various other things that help you um, uh, influence your behavior. It's the same with security. This takes time. But ultimately, um, we can quantify it. And this is the key thing. And this is the thing that most security professionals are waking up to, which is gone are the days where the human aspect is this kind of nebulous, gray, let's train people and hope that people take that home. There are still organizations doing that, but they don't need to. They can be much more deliberate, much more data-driven, and much more quantifiable when it comes to risk. This makes me wonder what industries are interested in affecting behavioral change for security purposes. I guess the answer isn't all that surprising. There's financial services. So without a doubt for us, um, we've had the most traction in industries that are highly regulated um, and often quite mature when it comes to security. So banking, financial services and insurance, um, they are key industries, not just for us, but actually unsurprisingly, when you look at the security landscape, they've made the most progress. But we're also seeing a huge amount of traction um, from customers who are having really great success in the legal sector. We see the same in software, actually in the software industry. And unsurprisingly, in Europe, there are um, legislate, there is legislation like GDPR that ultimately drives um, organizations to be able to demonstrate that they've taken the appropriate steps and measures. And that's the case here in the US and again in other parts of the world too. So this landscape is changing quite a lot and industries are ultimately adjusting to reflect that. So are there verticals that are more likely to see this improvement over others? Um, there are certainly verticals who've got further to go than others as far as their security behavior is concerned. What do I mean by that? Well, actually, like I said, if you think about it, financial services, government, uh, um, uh, the government sector as well as so the public sector, um, or specifically if you're looking at uh, security and law enforcement and the intelligence community, these are um, uh, groups of people who have for quite a long time known that there are bad people trying to trick them into doing things. And so even though there are clearly improvements that can be made in the way that they look after networks and systems and data, ultimately people are much more live and much more willing to go the extra mile to protect information and data and assume that not everything they receive is true or good. 
But actually, you roll forward to the charity sector, maybe the education sector. Um, we definitely see in uh, media and sports, it's taken actually a bit of time, but they're ultimately moving quite more aggressively into looking at more mature ways to address their security risk. And when it comes to the people component, that still lags behind. Most companies start with investment in the technology and the process, and then turn to the people is the truth. And so in those particular sectors, there's a fair bit of work to do. I'd like to thank Oz Alashi for coming on the show and talking about his experience both in the intelligence community and now in the commercial space around behavioral security. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast, tell a friend. I bet there are others who like commercial-free narrative infosec podcasts. I have so many stories about hackers who are making a positive difference in the world. And be sure to check out Error Code, my new podcast that focuses on IoT and embedded security. Error Code is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at robertvamosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon or at robertvamosi on Twitter. And tell me what you like and even what you don't. The Hacker Mine is brought to you commercial-free by For All Secure. For The Hacker Mine, I'm Robert Famosi.